But grace is, uh, you know, one of those subjects in theology that is often misunderstood. When you talk to uh, those in the Reformed movement or you talk to Catholics, they like to use the expression that something is a means of grace, which is a very loaded term. Um, A means of grace means that somehow you can do something to get more grace. Uh, And so for them, baptism, for instance, is a means of grace. In other words, when you go through that ceremony of being baptized, it imparts grace to the person undergoing the ceremony. Now, here we would obviously disagree with that. Baptism is a, is a picture of what has happened to us in salvation. It's, it's a representation of our, our faith union with Christ, our baptism into Christ. And so, so clearly, it's not a means of grace. Grace is a free gift of God, right? And so there's nothing we can do to earn it. In many of my discussions with people, uh, when I have opportunity to share the gospel, I always, I always ask them the question, so, so what does a person need to do to be made right with God? Because that answer is very telling. It's either up to God to do something to them, or it's up to them to do something to get closer to God. And that is, that is what it boils down to, basically. Are, are you involved in a works-based theology, or are you relying on grace? And you know, grace is a New Testament concept that was unfamiliar to the Greek culture. They didn't know what grace was. They had pagan sacrifices that were offered as a way for man to somehow appease the God's wrath. Well, they weren't far off, but the reality is that there's nothing we can do on our end to appease God's wrath. Uh, They were obviously worshiping false gods, uh, idols, but the reality is true that God required a sacrifice. The the difference with Christianity is that in Christ, God paid the penalty himself. God sent Christ to bear our sins upon himself, and then Christ sacrificed himself, assuaging the wrath of God. So... Christians believe that the gospel appeased God's own wrath, that, that Christ appeased uh, God's and the anger that he had towards man for man's sin. So, what is grace all about? Well, we obviously can't obtain more grace by reaching out to God. So what is the grace of God? Well, we're going to look at it in the text today and hopefully we'll bring some clarity to it. But what I really want to talk about is two ways that the grace of God should impact our life as believers. So I want to I want to understand what grace is, but I also want to understand what it's supposed to do to us. Okay, so here we are in verse 11, chapter two of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. 
So two ways that the grace of God should impact your life as a believer. What is grace and what does it mean to you? Well, the first way is the grace of God should instruct you. Do you see that in verses 11 to 12? Look back at the text. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing. Do you see that? Instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Grace is the subject of verses 11 to 14. And in the past tense, it says, it has appeared. Do you see that? It's past tense. This phrase, the grace of God only shows up a couple other times in the New Testament. Believe it or not, this is a very rare phrase. Uh, Romans 5.15, 1 Corinthians 15.10. The grace of God that's being talked about here is not just God's kindness to us, but it, it involves more than that. It's talking about Christ's birth, His life, His death, His resurrection, and His glorification. All of that is the grace of God. So over in Ephesians chapter 2, when it says you have been saved by grace and that not a, uh, through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. What's he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the faith there. He's talking about the whole thing, the grace of God in the birth, life, death. Um, and resurrection and glorification of Christ. That, all of that, is the grace of God. By grace you have been saved. It's past tense. And this grace, it says in the text, is doing what? It's doing something. It's bringing salvation to all men. Now, we need to understand this phrase because is everybody saved? No. No. So it must mean something else, right? So in the context, it would seem that uh, what's being talked about here is all classes and kinds of men, all types of men, right? But the grace has an educative purpose. Grace does something, it says in the text. And what does it do? It, it's almost personified as like a school teacher who who instructs believers continually this is a present active it means it's ongoing in the in the present time he it continually instructs us grace instructs us this uh this word instructing has the idea of training educating even disciplining or chastising it's it's this idea of Educating us. And and it instructs us in a couple of different ways, if you'll notice the text. They're both in verse 12. And it's, it's, I love it when an outline sort of lays on the surface of the text like this. It makes my life easy. But uh, how does it, what's the first way it instructs us? It tells us to what? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires, right? It's right there. The first purpose of grace's instruction is that believers would deny sin. They would, they would disown it. They would refuse it. They would renounce it. That's the idea here. It's a strong word, and Paul's the only one that uses it in the New Testament. 
And interestingly, this is, again, past tense, and it indicates there's a, a starting point to this denial of sin. It, it's also in the middle voice. Uh, it's a little technical, but basically what it means is that the person who's, who's supposed to deny it isn't just, it isn't just God doing it to us. It isn't them doing it to somebody else, but they're involved in it themselves. It's a self-denial. It's, in other words, it's, you're supposed to deprive yourself of any indulgence in vice. You're supposed to deny yourself those things. The grace of God has appeared, and it's instructing us to do something. It's instructing us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires. Now look back at the text with me in Titus. Look at verses 15 to 16. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Those are the false teachers. And the false teachers sort of are the antithesis of what it means to be living in a godly lifestyle. And so here the Apostle Paul says that... We're not to be like them, basically. If you look at the first part of chapter 2, older men, older women, young women, young men, you see that? All these different groups within the church are supposed to deny worldliness and ungodliness so that they don't look like these false teachers. Now, notice one other thing. These words, ungodliness and worldly desires, Ungodliness is singular. Worldly desires is plural. Do you see that? So some commentators think that uh, the root problem is ungodliness and the many manifestations of it are worldly desires. They're, they're linked together. And both words have um, the word the in front of them. So it's, it's the ungodliness and the worldly desires. And, and uh, basically what it's saying is, and these are the things that are in opposition to God. These are the things that oppose God and His grace. If you indulge yourself in ungodliness and worldly desires, you are in direct opposition to the grace of God. The allure of this world is hard to deny. Especially when one has trained themselves to indulge in it continually. Right? I mean, sin in the form of ungodliness and worldly desires, it needs to be starved out of our lives. The food supply to it needs to be cut off. And yet we continue to feed it. We feed it. More and more worldly desires. They should be starved, not indulged. And the only way to, to kill sin is to rob it of its power. 
And one can only do that if they have come to know the grace of God. You cannot do it in your flesh. You cannot subdue the flesh enough to starve out your desire for the world. What's in the world? John tells us, right? It's the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. That's the world. And we need to starve it. We need to not indulge it. John MacArthur says, uh, let me just say, I I wanted to say this before that. If you find yourself stuck in sin, if you're stuck in neutral, or I don't believe there is a neutral, if you're heading towards sin, ungodliness and worldly desires, the grace of God is the antidote. And if you find yourself stuck there, remember uh, these words. We cannot sin beyond God's grace because as wicked and extensive as our sins might be or become, they will never approach the greatness of His grace. Do you understand that? You may be stuck in sin, but you have been given power in the grace of God. The Spirit indwells you. You can overcome sin. You don't have to be stuck in it. And I preach this to myself, too. I'm not up here saying I'm sinless, so don't, don't ever take that... Um, Don't ever take that to be my meaning. I'm not judging anybody up here. The Word of God is judging all of us. If we're we're in love with this world, guess who the love... uh, I'm not saying this right. (laughs) Our love for God gets pushed out. Right? Right? If we're pursuing worldly desires and pleasures and ungodliness, guess what happens to our love for God? I mean, Jesus said it, right? You cannot love God and mammon, right? You can't serve two masters. It's either one or the other. And that's what Paul is saying here. The second instruction that grace gives us is to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. See that? So, this is kind of that put-off, put-on model. We're supposed to put off ungodliness and worldly desires, and we're supposed to replace it with something else. You see that? It's not enough just to stop sinning. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Believers are called to an active lifestyle of godly living, replacing sin with righteousness. And notice the text. There's, there's those three adverbs there in the text. How are we supposed to live? Sensibly. And this is a word we don't use much anymore, huh? How often do you hear the word sensibly in day-to-day conversation? I, I almost never hear it. But the word describes different people groups. Notice that every one of the people groups at the beginning of the book uh, say that this is supposed to be a character quality of, of each of these groups. 
You see that? Look at chapter 1, verse 8. The elders, those who are being considered to be elders, are supposed to be hospitable, loving what is good, and sensible. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. Old men, (laughs) older men, sorry, are to be temperate, dignified, and sensible. Older women, uh, verse 3, drop down to verse 5, are to be sensible. Likewise, urge the young men to be, verse 6, sensible. So, So this is something for all of us. This is not just for the elders of the church. The elders need to be sensible. That is sound in mind. But uh, this thing's going to drive me crazy today. But it's the whole church is supposed to be sensible, practical, sound-minded, sober, temperate, discreet. That's the idea bound up in this word. As one writer said, a clear mind and accurate thinking do not arise from the absence of distraction, but from the presence of God's grace. So it's not enough just to get rid of all the distractions and the sin. We need the grace of God. And he says, uh, he goes on to say, we're to be righteous. We're to live righteously. And this means in an upright manner, in a godly manner. And and there's a sense of moral obligation to this word. Uh, Paul uses it to describe his own actions over in 1 Thessalonians 2.10. Don't turn there, but it's translated there uprightly. He says, I behave towards you uprightly. That's the idea. And then the third one, godly. This describes a person's attitude towards God. uh, His relationship toward God and the things of God. It's their, it's their disposition towards him and his precepts. So we're to live sensibly, righteously, and godly. When? In the present age, right? Now. God's grace is operational in the here and now. I guess I I bring that up as a point, and I think it's in the text, because it doesn't mean that someday the grace of God is going to rescue us in the future, or someday we're going to live according to the grace of God. But the grace of God operates here and now. It operates here and now. It doesn't just rescue us from the evil world, but it transforms us in the midst of it. And I think that's an important point. We're not supposed to be taken out of this world. We're supposed to be in it and living differently. And we're not supposed to look like it. See, denying and living are really two sides of the same coin of repentance. Right? Think of it. One side of the coin, the other side of the coin... One's negative, one's positive. True repentance involves the denial of sin, the renewing of the mind with the Word of God, and the replacement of sin with righteousness, godly living. 
You cannot simply stop sinning and call it true repentance. You can say, suppose you're struggling with being a drunkard. Gee, I'm never going to have a drink again. But is that true repentance? No, it's not. You have to think about the scriptures over in Ephesians for the Apostle Paul gives us several examples of what true repentance looks like. When is a thief no longer a thief? It's when he stops stealing. He renews his mind with the word of God. He labors with his own hands to do what is good so that he has enough to share with others. Right? That's the full process of repentance. It's not just the denial of the sin. It's a complete renewal of the mind. It involves the intellect, the emotion, and the will. There's a sorrow over the sin, a breaking of one's heart that we've sinned against God. There's an understanding that it is sin because the Word of God tells us it's sin. And then it's the the will actively doing something different. And what does the will do? It pursues righteousness. Right? It's, it's not rocket science, but it takes effort. Think of your soul as a garden. How many of you like to do gardening? We got farmers here, right? But none of you are farmers from Idaho. You're all from California. <laughs> but uh, if you have a garden, you understand that you have to pull the weeds out of the garden, right? And what happens if you don't put plants in the garden? You just pull the weeds. What comes back? Weeds, right? If you replace the weeds with plants, what happens? You have a built-in weed abatement program, right? The weeds don't come back. I mean, there's some weeds, but not nearly as many as if, uh, as if you had not put plants there in its place. That's the idea of your soul. You have to pull the weeds, and you have to put something in its place. Otherwise, what's going to happen? The weeds are just going to creep right back in. It's not enough just to stop sinning. You have to put righteousness in its place. So the grace of God should instruct you. The second way it should impact your life is it should inspire you. And we don't think about being inspired too much. We throw that word around loosely a lot of the time. You know, a song is inspirational or whatever. But seriously, look at the text. He says in verse 13, we got instructing us and looking for the blessed hope. These are, these are the two ways that uh, the grace of God should impact our lives. Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for, for good deeds. As a believer, we should be inspired 
to continue to watch and wait for the return of Christ, right? We should wait expectantly for the grace of God to, in a sense, reappear. It already appeared once, past tense, and now we're waiting for it to reappear. There's really two reasons why the grace of God should inspire you this morning, and I'm hopeful you will be inspired. Not because of me, but because of the Word of God. And the first is Christ's return in glory. You see that there in the text. Christ's second appearing will be accompanied by glory. This is what's known as the blessed hope to believers. This is the blessed hope. In fact, it's the blessed hope and the appearing. They share the same definite article, which means that they're speaking of the same event. The blessed hope is the appearing of Christ. And the appearing of Christ is the blessed hope. And the appearing in verse 11 and here is where we get the translated word epiphany. You've heard the word epiphany before? That's what it is in the Greek. And it means advent. In verse 11, it's a verb. In verse 13, it's a noun. Turn over to Second um, Timothy chapter 1. And I want you to see verses 9 to 10 there. Verse 9 of Second uh, Timothy chapter 1 who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see that? It's it's the appearing of Christ that is the grace of God. He has come and he has died and he has appeared. And now this is talking about the next time he appears. It will be a blessed event. Christ's first epiphany revealed God's grace. His second epiphany will reveal God's glory. Now, why why is the appearing of Christ a, a, a blessed hope for believers? Well, there's really two reasons. One is that when Christ appears for his church, it will mean our translation to glory. We aren't going to have to die. If Christ returns in our lifetime, we don't have to pass through the ugliness of death. We will be translated in an instant. That's something to look forward to, isn't it? That's something to inspire us. Secondly, uh, by the way, if you want to reference that, look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18, or 1 Corinthians 15, because they say exactly what I've just said. When Christ returns for the church, we get translated. In the, in, the, in the twinkling of an eye, it says. Secondly, so no death. Secondly, no wrath. 
Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.9, if Christ returns in our lifetime and we get to be with Christ, that means that we don't have to go into the tribulation period. We get rescued from the wrath of God. And I know we say tribulation period, but when you read the book of Revelation, the tribulation period, right? When all the wrath of God is poured out on this unbelieving world and it's famines, plagues, disease, war. It's going to be a horrible time. Two thirds of the earth's population are going to be wiped out. We don't have to deal with any of that if Christ returns for us in our lifetime. I don't believe we have to deal with that anyway because we will meet Christ in the air when the resurrection happens. But the point is that we avoid God's wrath when Christ returns. The rest of the world, unfortunately, gets the tribulation. This should inspire you, right? When Christ returns, it's going to be a glorious day. It signals the arrival of blessing for believers and paybacks for those who have persecuted the church and rejected Christ. And and so I guess the point is we shouldn't just live with some sort of weak gratitude to Jesus for dying for our sins. That's, That's old news, if I could say it that way, right? And you as a believer, how should you live? Now, with an expectant hope that Christ is going to return at any moment. That inspires us to holiness. Right? Because we can never pay Christ back enough for what He did for us. Believers don't live that way. We're supposed to live with hope. We look forward to His return. That's when all of the God's promises begin to become a reality for us. So Christ's return in glory. The second reason it should inspire us is Christ's redemption of His church. Look at this. It says that He did this to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Are you guys zealous for good deeds? Please say yes. (laughs) Redemption and purification. Again, past tense actions that Christ's death accomplished on behalf of believers. Christ's sacrifice on our behalf is made personal in that those whom he died for are, are literally his peculiar possession. And in this case, the possession wants to be back with the one who owns it. Notice the link between redemption and purification. It's a dual purpose of Christ's sacrifice. It was to remove believers from the control of sin... Do you see that? Redemption from every lawless deed. And to remove the defilement of sin. To purify for himself a people for his own possession. So it's, it's the removal of the control of sin and the removal of the defilement of sin. 
By the way, this, this uh, phrase here, to be his own possession, this is the only use in the New Testament. It basically means that we're his special and personal treasure. He, he chose us and gave us his life to acquire this. I mean, he, he gave his life to acquire us as his personal treasure. And why should that inspire you? Because Christ is most certainly going to return for what belongs to him. Right? He's going to return. He's going to gather us to himself. And that is something to look forward to. Look at John chapter 14. Thomas will get us there eventually, but look at John 14. It's one of our favorite uh, passages on the rapture. I mean, Jesus is about to be crucified. He's about to leave his disciples on earth. And he says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may also, you may be also. Right? I'm coming back for what belongs to me. I'm coming back for my special treasure. You. That future grace should inspire us. Peter tells us that we have a a living hope in heaven. Christ is alive. How many of you believe in the resurrection? Yeah, I hope all of you, right? Because, I mean, I just did a funeral this week again. And, you know, I got to tell you, when you stand there and you look at all the tombstones and you think about that person's life and now they're just bones in the earth and you think to yourself what do I say to these people to give them hope is it just over is this it was their life just that and now it's over with or is there an afterlife well the reality is if if Christ was raised and he resides with God now And He's coming back for us. He is the first fruits of the life that we can look forward to. And i got to tell you, if that weren't there, all of this becomes worthless. Right? This whole life just becomes just an experience that's over with when you die. Or... There's life after death. And I've seen people die without hope. It's not pretty. Future grace should inspire us to press on in the faith. In the anticipation of Christ's return at any moment, it's a purifying hope. That, that thought of denying ungo- ungodliness or worldly desires... What causes us to do that 
is the hope that we have that Christ could return at any minute. Right? You don't want to be embarrassed or shrink back in shame if Christ returns and you're, right, you're living the wildlife. I think I think there's really three implications of this that I kind of want to pull together here at the end. One is the the doctrine of imminency. And imminency just means kind of at any moment, right? It it's unexpected. It's it could come at any moment. Let me just say if you live your life in anticipation of the fact that he could come at any time, I guarantee you it's going to affect your decision-making in the present. Right? You don't want to shrink back in shame when Christ appears. It will purify your thoughts. It will purify your actions. It will change your decision-making if you know that Christ could come at any moment. Now, I'm going to take you one place here. Turn, Turn back to the book of Acts. And I will, at some day, hopefully get back to the book of Acts. But Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. Now, we, always, we know the story about Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, right? They, they tried to pull a ruse on the church and tried to make it look like they were giving more than they actually were giving. But the example of giving comes in these verses here. Verses 32 to 35, And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and none of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. And with great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as had any need. Socialism. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now, what's going on here? What's going on here? Well, two things. One is, this is talking about apostolic authority. I mean, the apostles were doing things, and it was obvious that God was working through them, and the people were were bringing things and laying them at the apostles' feet so that the apostles could distribute them. They believed in the authority of the apostles, so that's one. But number two, people were selling things off because what did they think was coming? They thought Christ was going to return at any minute and establish his kingdom on earth. And when he came to establish his kingdom, the stuff that they had then would be nothing compared to what they would have in the kingdom. So why not get rid of it all? It's worthless, right? Do you live like that? (laughs) Do you live like that? I got a garage full of stuff. I got to tell you, I have to build a loft in order to be able to put more stuff on top of my stuff. Do we live like Christ and the kingdom could come tomorrow? Could come today? Are we that inspired? 
I don't think so. You know, we own land, we own houses, we have IRAs, we have, we have stuff. We feel security in all of that. And I'm telling you, land was the issue for people back then. If you had land, you could farm it, you could, you could bring in crops. When, when the Jews came into the promised land, they distributed it to the families so that families got their portion that was promised to them. So for them to give up their land, it was no small deal. It was, it was because they expected the kingdom at any moment. They expected Christ to return. They lived with that hope. And so for them, this stuff is nothing. It's nothing. Second implication, I think, I believe the church today lacks inspiration. What do I mean by that? Well, we are so in love with this world that I don't think we look forward to the next all that much. I know my wife does. (laughs) She can't wait to get there because she says there's not going to be any technology in the future. (laughs) See, we don't. We don't look forward to Christ's return for His church because that means an end to the world that we've made for ourselves. We're not looking forward to the world that God has made for us or is going to make for us. We like our little world that we made for ourselves. See, maybe we think God can't improve on what we've made. But I know you've probably heard this before, but for believers, we're supposed to live for the there and then, not the here and now. Right? There and then, not here and now. So we should be inspired. You know, there's the the imminency of Christ. There's the inspiration, the hope. Have you ever read the book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn? You should read it. You know, we have a tendency to think that it's not going to be all that great living in heaven with God because we're going to be floating on a cloud, playing a harp, you know, like doing nothing for the rest of eternity. That doesn't sound very appealing, does it? Well, Randy in his book, um, he makes the point that the uh, heaven and the kingdom is a very physical place. It's a literal place. And, and, and there's so much there to look forward to, we just can't even picture it. And so we kind of dismiss it. It's like, yeah, I'm going to be in heaven. I'm going to be floating. You know, I'm going to have wings. You're not going to have wings. I hate to tell you this. You're not going to have wings. You don't turn into angels. Angels are created beings that existed at the creation. We don't turn into angels. We turn into glorified people in glorified bodies, and we get to rule with Christ on an earthly kingdom. It's very earthly, and so there's a lot to look forward to. I guess that's the point. There's a lot to look forward to, and... and 
and it's going to be much better than the world you've made for yourself here. Third, uh, I'm using the word insolence or rudeness. I believe that the church, and I'm not pointing any fingers, I'm not saying this church at large, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this church in particular, I'm saying the church at large, has forgotten what grace looks like. So they don't practice it with other people. See, if, if we have come to know the grace of God, we should show the grace of God to others. Right? Many churches have just become exceedingly ungracious. They're so focused on truth that they've forgotten what grace looks like, and in doing so, they've forgotten what truth is. It's ironic. Just take a moment to remember what your life was like before grace came to you. What were you like? I remember when I was a teenager, I had an afro, believe it or not. I was a dork. I was uh, socially unacceptable. I was a terrible sinner. I was awkward. I was gawky. Um, And when I think back to what I was like back then, I think I haven't come very far. But that's what grace is. That's what I'm saying. Grace is like that. It, it took you where you were, and it completely changed you to who you are now. And so for you to look at other people in some sort of judgy sort of way, like, like I would never be like that. Well, you were like that. Right? I mean, the apostle... The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, he, he says that very thing. Such were some of you, right? Don't, don't ever forget the grace of God in your life. Imagine what you would be today if grace had never come to you. You would be headlong heading for destruction. Not giving a care about anybody else in the world but yourself. Loving your sin and having no hope. I remember what life was like with no hope. And I was depressed. And I was anxious. And I was fearful. And I was awkward. But hope has changed me. The grace of God has changed me. I look forward to seeing my Savior face to face. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous Christian writer, he says, the ultimate test of our spirituality is the measure of our amazement at the grace of God. Let me read that again. The ultimate test, I'll just say, of your spirituality is the measure of your amazement at the grace of God. Are you still amazed by the grace of God? Or do you think somehow you just took your life and 
added a little Jesus to it and it made you a better person? Or do you understand that you were dead, literally spiritually dead and hopeless and lost until Christ made you alive? Do you understand? That's why when I hear people give testimonies and they say, I don't have much of a testimony. What do you mean? You went from death to life. How is that not a testimony? (laughs) Right? From death to life. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. And it instructs us. It inspires us. And we should be so impacted by the grace of God in our lives that it, its effects should be evident to anybody who knew us as unbelievers. Should forever change our orientation and our direction. Grace upon grace has changed us. And praise God it did. Let's pray.